Hi, my name is Miata. Good evening, family. It is a privilege and an honor to be with you tonight. Um, we have been in a collection of talks on prayer that we've titled Master Class. And I'm going to sound like a broken record because um, every preacher before me has said, we are not the masters of prayer. We are kind of like TAs, teachers, assistants, and students that help you kind of digest the material um, and work through it. But I have really loved this series um, because we get a chance to look at some of the most powerful prayers in the Bible. We get to analyze it, but then we also get to apply it to our own prayer lives. So over the last couple of weeks, and I'll just do a brief overview, um, my brothers have brought incredible, incredible words. We kicked it off with Pastor Sean Clemens, who talked about the high priestly prayer. And the high priestly prayer is probably the longest captured prayer of Jesus. Um, and what I loved about what he talked about is Jesus was modeling for us how we could have unity with Christ, and he was praying that for us to have unity with one another as he had unity with God. Um, and it showed the intimacy that we can have in prayer. Then it was followed up with um, Pastor AJ, who walked us through the prayers of David, um, and he showed us that 80% of the Psalms start or end with thanksgiving. Um, and what I loved about his sermon is that he said, Thanksgiving creates an aroma of praise in our inner life and in our prayer life. And what I, what I took from that message is that thanksgiving produces perspective and perspective produces a different posture. So we get to uh, change our posture as we relate to God in our prayer. Um, and then last week we had Pastor Stephen Law who killed it. Um, when he talked about the prayers of Jeremiah. Um, and I don't know about you, but I definitely needed that sermon as a reminder that we can be real with God. He already knows it anyways. <laughs> he knows it anyways. Why don't you just be real with him? Um, but what I really appreciated about that sermon is that we can lay all the pieces of our life before God. You know, one of my favorite um, psalms, and this is the message version, which I know people will tell you don't read because it's a commentary, but the message version in Psalm 18 says, um, God made my life complete when I placed all the pieces before him. God rewrote the text of my life when I opened the book of my heart to him. Something happens in our prayer life when we um, lay the pieces of our heart. We hold nothing back from God something supernatural happens. He puts those pieces back together for his glory. Amen? And so um, prayer is powerful. I'll say that again. Prayer is powerful. Carrie Job wrote this this week that I thought was really appropriate for our time together. She says, God is always moved by our prayers of faith. Says, I pray that when you don't know what to do, that you would ask God, I pray that when you feel overwhelmed, that you would be surrounded with support and godly advice and wisdom to help you because prayer is powerful. So I'll just share a little bit of my, my personal experience with prayer. I was, um, you know, I grew up in church, so I've been around prayer warriors my entire life, but I never stepped into the waters myself <laughs> until I was in college. So I was 19 years old at Spelman College, HBCU, hey, 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 um, <laughs> in the ATL, shouty, um, and me and my friend found out that Juanita Bynum 
had a church in Atlanta. So you may not, many of you guys may not know about Juanita Bynum, but uh, I won't say look her up, but maybe look her up in your free time. <laughs> She's a little wild. But at the time, she was awesome. Think of your uh, T.D. Jakes, your Sarah Jakes Roberts, your Christine Kane. If you find out they're in your area, you're going to go to where they're at. So my friend and I decided we're going to go to her church. But at the time, we were going to an every nation church. So we were like, you know what? We're going to go and be faithful to our own church. But we found out she had a 5 a.m. prayer meeting. 5 a.m. 5 a.m. This is how you know you're young because you have energy. <laughs> you could be up till 1 a.m. and you could still get up at 5 a.m. And it was like a 20-minute drive, by the way. But I just remember my experience in that place was like, it was the size of maybe the Kid Builders Auditorium. And it was lined with people. There was no worship. At the front were eight women who were going to be praying different um, prayer things. So one woman would be praying for families. One woman would be praying for our nation. One woman would be praying for um, children. Uh, But we were all kind of like what we did in the prayer and fasting night. We all were to pray out loud, and then that woman would close it out. Um, now, this prayer meeting was an hour and a half long. So you already know, eight women, it, we're, we're done in 45 minutes. Um, but what I learned from that experience is this. The word of God is powerful, and it needs no pomp and circumstance. It stands on it, its own. What we were taught in those meetings was to go to the word of God. What does he have to say about family? What does he have to say about marriages? What does he have to say about children? What does he have to say about the nation? And we pray in alignment with that word. The second thing that I learned is that you need to get in the room with people who pray. Okay? (laughs) There is something that is taught, yes, but there's things that are caught when you're in the environment of prayer. I remember them saying, okay, we're going to go through these prayer points, and you're going to pray for your needs, and when you're done, I want you to look to the woman to your, to your right, and I want you to and pray for her, ask God for a word for her and pray into it. Then I want you to look to the woman to your left, and I want you to ask God for a word for her. When, when I tell you, I was like, God, Give me the the gift of discernment. Give me a prophetic gift right now because I got to pray for this lady that I do not know. Um, That's, I was baptized in prayer in that way. And it happened because I was in a room filled with people who were hungry and desperate to see God meet them, to see God meet the people next to them, which we didn't know each other at the beginning of this, uh, this prayer thing. And we went to this 5 a.m. prayer call for six months, six months. And I can attest that my life has been marked by those moments when I was 19 years old. To this day, I can trace some of the patterns of God's hand upon my life because of the things that happened in that room. And some of the prayers that were prayed over me are now coming to fruition now, years later. So get in a prayer group. Jump on the prayer call after this moment. Get in a prayer group. If you're not in one, get with your small group people, with your friends, and start praying and see what God can do. Um, But tonight, we get to look at the prayers of Hannah. And maybe you're like me, and you're you're thinking, I've always skipped right through Hannah and gotten right to the action with Samuel and Saul and Samuel and David. So why Hannah? Well, Hannah shows us 
the impact of bold, desperate prayers. That a life of prayer can bring about not only impact and change in us, but in our personal situations, but it also has the power to impact a nation. So if you have your Bibles, and it'll probably be on the screen, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 through 15. Uh, it's a lot of scripture, so if you would just bear with me. And it's a lot of like words you don't normally read. So it says, There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. All that means is that he comes from the line of Levi. But um, he had two wives, which that already tells you there's some problems we're about to encounter. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were the priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. Though the Lord had closed her womb, keep a note right there, highlight that part right there, um, her, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Leave it to the husband, okay? And now, uh, he better encourage his wife. Now, number nine, it says, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was greatly distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you would indeed look on my affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. We're, we're getting to the end of it. Don't worry. As she continued praying before the, lo the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Hannah was, um, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk, lady? Put your wine away from you. That, I added that part. Um, but Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. That's a great word. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition. And so she got up from that place, she wiped her face, and she was no longer sad. Um, tonight, I want to spend a couple of minutes with you talking through this idea of desperate times call for desperate prayer. Desperate times call for desperate prayer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this time that we have in your presence Lord, I thank you for the songs that we have sung um, that declare who you are and um, declare your renown in the world. God, I thank you that we have access to you because of your son. 
God, that we can come boldly to the throne of grace and we can ask you for your mercy, for your goodness, for your grace, God. We can pour out our hearts to you, Jesus, because you made a way for us. So, Lord, tonight, um, as I speak these words, God, I pray that they wouldn't be my words, but they would be your words, God, that you would encourage um, the person that's that's disappointed, God, that you would bring hope to the hopeless, that you would remind us that you are with us, for us, that you see us, God, that you are El Roy, that you are El Shalom, God, a God who not only brings peace but brings wholeness. So, Jesus, these words in this moment is yours. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So desperate times call for desperate prayer. I always cry when I pray, Lord. When, when we were talking about this kind of series on prayer um, and shaping the ideas behind it, Pastor Stephen threw out a curveball, and he said, why don't we look at the prayers of Hannah? And I was like, whoa, I mean, what about David? What about Jesus? All those you know about. Um, but Hannah's kind of an unknown prayer warrior. Um, and we were joking around, and I said, if we were a different church, it's, uh, the church shall be nameless, they would probably name this sermon Hannah, the original desperate housewife. Whoosh! Okay, um, but we're not that church, so this is called Desperate Times Call for Desperate Prayer. But, <laughs> um, but the show, so I, have, I mean, the show hasn't been on air for years, right? Um, so I had to go on and Google and like look it up. But the show, The Desperate Housewives, spent 15 years on television. Season after crazy season, countless TV awards, countless awards for acting. This is how we got to know Ava Longoria. Yes, she came from this show. Uh, this show. Um, but as I was, re- I was reading one of the commentaries, it said, this was a show that we could laugh to, that we kind of cringed at some moments. We cried with as these women faced desperate situation after desperate situation that led them to make some crazy seemingly desperate decisions that under normal circumstances they would never make, right? Why do you think it resonated so deeply with people? It's kind of like how Hamilton resonates with us now, and maybe This Is Us resonates with us now. I, I don't think it was just about mindless entertainment, which some of it really was, or even like over-fictionalized scenes and dramatic tellings. Um, I think this story spoke deeply to the longing, the brokenness, the disappointment, and the battles that we don't talk about publicly, that we keep behind closed doors. Um, And I would even venture to say that sometimes we don't even talk about with God, right? 2020 has brought a lot of that stuff to the surface for all of us. Um, But what I love about the Bible and the stories captured in it from Genesis to Revelation, is that we see real people dealing with real issues of delay and disappointment and loss and grief, but we also see the intervention of a very real God. And that's what we're talking about tonight. So Hannah, like many of us and like the women on that show, found herself in a very real and desperate situation. She was a wife in a society that weighed her worth based on what she could produce, children, and she was barren. 
So you already know the circumstances that she found herself in. Um, And her husband, though he loved her dearly, he also understood what society demanded of him, which is that he have a male heir to carry on the name and to keep his property in their possession. So he took an additional wife, Peninnah. So Hannah is the first wife. Peninnah is the second wife. Um, Peninnah, as we read earlier, was able to give birth to children. And some commentaries say that she gave birth to 10 children. So year after year after year, as Peninnah gave birth to a child, Hannah remained barren. So in itself, without Peninnah's taunting, that would make you heartbroken and heartsick. But add add insult to, to injury, Peninnah taunted her incessantly because she had no children. So when the time came for them to go up to the temple of Shiloh and give their Thanksgiving offering, ding, ding, Pastor AJ's sermon, Hannah decided in her heart that she was going to lay out her entire request before God. Um, So as we see with the story of Hannah, desperate times called for desperate measures. And I believe that a desperate measure for the believer is that we go before God, that we hit the ground in prayer and we stay there until we receive wisdom and understanding and we see the heart of God. Desperate times and situations reveal our deepest needs because only in desperate situations do you realize what you've been relying on the entire time or you realize what you don't have and what you really need. Desperation will drive you to something. For a lot of us, myself included, it'll either drive you to rely on yourself, to try to figure out, figure it out, make some things happen. We see that with Abraham and Sarai. She decided, okay, well, God is taking a long time. I'm going to give this maidservant to him, and we're going to have a baby. No, ma'am, no. <laughs> no, you shouldn't have done that. Anywho. I'm very passionate about that. Or desperation can drive us to God. So in verse 9, we see that Hannah's desperate situation produced a desperation for God himself. She knew who to go to and where to go to. Sometimes the the last place you want to go when you're in pain is in public because you feel like people are going to know what's happening in your life immediately as they see you. Um, But Hannah was propelled to the house of God because she knew that was the only place that she could find the bomb for her soul. Where do you go when you're in a desperate situation? Is it to yourself or is it to the house of God? Hannah tells us that it's the house of God. Now, I was reading a commentary and it says, the problem for many Christians is that they're either not hungry for spiritual things at all, or they hunger for the wrong things. Things like emotional highs and purely academic knowledge of scripture. This is one of the reasons why God may bring difficulties into your life. He wants to help reorient your hunger for him so that you'll crave a deeper connection with him that whatever your circumstances Pray for true spiritual hunger because God will satisfy those who hunger for him. Look at Matthew 5 through 6. So we see here that if we let it, desperation can produce 
three things that I pulled from the story of Hannah, and that's vulnerability, persistence, and boldness. So vulnerability. It says in verse 10, Hannah was greatly distressed, and she prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. And then in verse 15, it says that Eli the priest questioned her, and she responded saying, no, Lord, I am a woman with a despairing spirit. I have not been drinking, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. It takes vulnerability and trust to pour out your heart to anyone. And we see here with Hannah that she poured out her heart to God. The only one who could truly handle the fullness of her pain, but also provide hope, provide comfort, and perspective when she needed it. I love this story of Hannah because we see that she pressed through her doubt and her disappointment, and she grasped onto God. Do we press through our doubt and disappointment? I know for me, I, I don't all the time. I am sad. I, like, I just want to pout and throw a tantrum in the corner. I do not decide to press through to God until I find him, until I grasp hold of his hope and his comfort. But sh- we see right here that she was vulnerable with God enough. She let her pain out in the open so that God could provide the answers that she needed. Um, We also see many times in the Bible that the Bible says that God is near to the vulnerable, to the broken in spirit, that he resists the proud, but he is close to the lowly and the humble. So if you find yourself in a vulnerable um, circumstance, in a desperate circumstance, know that God is near you tonight. So the next thing that we see is persistence. It says that she stayed so long pouring out her heart to the point where she had no words, only her lips were moving, but nothing came out. So much so that Eli, the chief priest, thought that she was drunk. Like, that's some desperate. Yeah, have you ever babysat a child who's like inconsolable? Where they're like, that's how hard she was crying. Um, We. Go to God like that. He already knows what you're feeling. He knows the frustrations, but he is the only one who can resolve those frustrations. So sometimes we go to our friends, and I know for me, sometimes I go to my friends, and I leave the conversation more frustrated, (laughs) like with not the peace that I need. But every time I go to God in prayer and I press through, I leave with the peace, strength to continue on, perspective most of the time. Um, And that's what we really need. Not saying that you shouldn't go to your friends and your prayer warriors, but do not do that in replacement for going to God. Um, So, yeah, being diligent with our prayers is not necessarily to remind God of his promise, but to remind our souls that his word is true and that he is active. Now, the biggest thing that I found um, as I was studying this prayer of Hannah is that she prayed a bold, faith-filled, fearless prayer. How many of us would break protocol? Uh, She went to the temple unaccompanied in a society where your husband is your covering. She decided, I'm going to go in the nighttime, and I'm going to pray. That is, that's bold. That, that makes, that you know that she was after something serious to break all types of protocol to go to God in prayer, where he could be found in his temple. And now, you know, we don't have any of the boundaries of a temple now because of 
Christ. Thank you, Jesus. So anytime we go to God in prayer, we're in his temple, in his presence. Um, She prayed a bold, faith-filled prayer, which Craig Rochelle calls a dangerous prayer, laying it all on the line, asking the Lord for a miracle. I love the word that she uses to describe herself in verse 11. She says, I am a maid servant. So a lot of times in the New Testament, Paul called himself a bondservant of Christ. In this time, a maidservant is a domestic servant bound to someone for life. So she's saying, Lord, I am bound to you for life. My utter uh, life depends on you. I can go nowhere else but you. And I love that because that is the type of posture we need to have when we go before God with our desperate, bold prayers. It makes me think about the woman at the well um, with the issue of blood. uh, And the Bible doesn't really talk about this, but I can imagine that she exhausted all of her, her resources trying to find healing for herself, right? And so... She goes to the doctor after doctor. They can't heal her, but she hears about this man named Jesus. Um, And at the time, she was considered unclean. So to break protocol, to go out in public where she shouldn't have been in the first place, she had to be desperate enough for a healing, for a touch from God to put herself in that position. But I love it, and I'm not going to do it tonight, but she, she decides, okay, while wow, there's crowds, I can't really get to him. Instead of walking away, she drops to her knees and she crawls to him. She drops to her knees and she crawls because she is desperate for God. And she knows nobody else has helped me. I've been in this predicament for 20 years. The only man who can help me is Christ. And I don't care who's here. I don't care if I'm breaking all types of protocol. I'm going to get to him. We need to have that kind of desperation to see God move in our lives, to see God move in our family's lives, where we will do whatever it takes. If it means I have to drop to my knees and crawl to Christ, if it means I need somebody to carry me and break through the roof and drop and lower me to God, I'm going to do that. If it means I need to drive 20 minutes to a church to hear a pastor on a stool tell me about Jesus, I'm going to get to God. I'm going to get in his presence because that's the only place I can find the balm that I need for my soul. I love uh, Craig Groeschel in his book, Dangerous Prayers. He says, we serve a God who can do more than we ask, seek, or imagine. So why do we play safe? For too long, he says, I had, to- I had lackluster, faithless, mostly empty prayers. What we see here with Hannah is that she was bold. She asked for what she needed. She didn't say, Lord, maybe if you could kind of like, I don't know, maybe come by my house sometime. She said, no, 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 Lord. I am your maidservant, meaning I am bound to you. My entire life is only dependent on you, and I need a miracle. Year after year, you seen this woman named Penna, Taunting me. (laughs) Okay, taunting me. And now she could have asked, like, get her Lord, but she didn't because she's holy. 
She asked the Lord for a miracle. She said, I need a child. I need an heir. And she made a bold, a bold prayer. She vowed that she would give this child. If he would give, if he would give her this miracle, she would give that child back to him. And what did, the, what did God do? He responded to her prayer because God responds to bold, faith-filled, desperate prayers. Amen? So what I love about this story even more so is that her story doesn't take place in a, a vacuum, right? Her story impacts generations and even the nation. Um, so if you would just, like, go with me for a little bit, I'm going to nerd out. Yay! We're going to school. Okay, so when you read the Bible, there are three stories happening always at the same time. There is the big overarching story called the meta, meta narrative. Then there is the second story uh, uh, named the Israel, the second narrative. I'll just call it the, the second narrative for right now. Um, and then there is a third storyline, which is the person that we're, that we're reading about, whether it be David, Jeremiah, um, who was the other one we talked about? Jesus and Hannah. So there's their, um, individual story right here. So the meta narrative of scripture is kind of the overarching, uh, storyline of the Bible. So God, the meta narrative of scripture is that God is after the redemption of the whole world, Right? God redeems world. Then the second narrative is in the Old Testament, Israel. In the New Testament, it's the church. And so the third one is Hannah. That's where we find ourselves. Okay, so Hannah um, it comes in the book of 1 Samuel. This is my favorite part. I love this. Uh, comes in the book of 1 Samuel. Sam, 1 Samuel comes after uh, the book of Ruth, where we find out about the lineage, uh, where David's going to come from, Ruth and Boaz. But before Ruth is the book of Judges. So in the book of Judges, we see um, God brings the Israelites out of Egypt bondage, and he brings them into the promised land. Um, he makes a covenant with them through Moses on Mount Sinai that he would be their God and they would be his people. Now, the Israelites don't keep their end of the bargain. Um, and so Judges is a book that just displays over and over the Israelites turn away from God. They, they bow down to all the different idol worship and stuff that's happening all around them in the different countries and tribes around them. Um, and then they cry out, they get, they get swept away, you know, oppressed. They cry out, God, save us. And God raises up a judge. And a judge is, a, is um, just a, a man or woman who says the word of the Lord, bring, calls them to repentance, and then they experience peace. But you see in the book of Judges, over and over, it's that cycle. They leave God. They are in rebellion, moral de, um, destruction, they get oppressed, they cry out to God, God raises up a man, then they experience peace. Then in their peace, they think, oh yeah, I'm, I got it, I can do it by myself. Then they fall into uh, rebellion, then they get oppressed, then God raises up a judge. <laughs> by the time we get to Hannah, there's no more judges, but God has not spoken to the people of Israel for, for probably hundreds of years. 
So Hannah's story intersects the story of Israel right at the perfect point. She cries out and says, God, give me a child and I will dedicate him to your work for the rest of my life. And God says, oh, yeah, because uh, these people right here, they are a mess. And 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 I'm desperate to redeem what? The world and redeem them through Israel. So I'm going to use your prayer, answer your prayer, but also answer the prayer of a nation and thus continue my meta-narrative of redeeming the world. What? Can you imagine, like, Hannah did not know that she was going to play, she was going to pray that prayer, that God would answer her prayer, but not only would he answer her prayer, he would answer the prayer of a nation, and not only would he answer the prayer of a nation, that she would be involved in his meta-narrative, which is redeeming the whole world. Sometimes we have no idea that the yes to our prayer is attached to a yes for somebody else and maybe a yes for a nation. I remember I was praying the, uh, uh, one time and God brought to memory Elizabeth and Mary. And now this seems very off, but just go with me. Elizabeth and Zachariah are probably in their 60s, right? Mary, 15. If God had answered Elizabeth and Zachariah's prayer for a baby years before, John would not be a forerunner for Christ. Mary would not have a safe place in Elizabeth. What God was doing in Mary would not be confirmed by Elizabeth and the child leaping in her belly and prophesying. So sometimes when God doesn't respond, it's not a no. It's a not yet. Because it's not just, the answer isn't just for you, it's for somebody else too. These desperate, desperate prayers can produce, bold, desperate, faith-filled prayers can produce a miracle in us, but it can produce an answer for someone else and maybe a nation. So as I close I know you're probably, now, you, now you're not thinking this, but why was this story included in the Bible? Why? Yes, it proves that God can use someone to answer a prayer to redeem the world. Yeah, but I think it also reminds us that if you find yourself in a desperate situation that God sees you, that you're not unseen by him, that you're not unheard by him, that he hears every single prayer that you pray. Even if you pray it for years and years and years, he hears it. And he's the only one who can offer healing and understanding because he was fully human. Not only fully God, but he was fully human, which means that he is familiar with our suffering and our pain. What God told me when I was reading this, like, why did you include this story, is that he is a God who touched the untouchable. He's a God who redeems the unforgivable. He's a God who resurrects the dead, and he is a God who has not forgotten about you. He's near to the brokenhearted. And even though our stories may seem insignificant, I'm going to cry. They are not unseen by God. And he's more committed to your story because he is the author of that story. 
I love this song that we sing called My Testimony. And um, the, the, the bridge says, if I'm not dead, he's not done. If you are not dead, he is not done. So keep praying. And keep seeking. Even if you're in a season that feels dried up, that feels like there's no relief in sight, even if you're in a barren season, out of that very place that you experience hardship, God can bring a wellspring of water. And he will provide relief for you. And he'll provide relief through you for others. God wastes nothing, no season, no situation. If we put it in the presence of God, it can be redeemed for good and for his glory. So maybe you're like me and you're still waiting for prayers uh, to be answered. I want to encourage you to return to God. Even if you have to drag your body <laughs> to him, even if you drag your body in your car to the church so someone can pray for you, so you can stand in faith, do it. Stick with God. Remember that he is not a man that he should lie. What he's saying to you in this season, stay until you get strength and peace from him. And lastly, I pray that this message tonight is one of hope. That uh, those without hope, that you would hope again. That you would ask again. That you would seek again. The Bible says you ask, seek, and knock, and the door will be open to you. He's not, God is not hiding from you. He's waiting for you. So come back to God. Ask again. Seek again, cry again, lay your body at the altar again, and wait on him and see what he'll do with you and through you. So let's pray. Um, if this is your first time listening to this sermon and you don't have a relationship with Christ um, and you're struggling, it's okay. We all struggle, but we um, who are in Christ land on the rock. So I pray that for you tonight, that you would surrender your heart to God and find that you are wrapped in the arms of a God that is unchanging and unshakable, that you would find firm footing on the rock that is God. So pray this with me. Father, I surrender my heart and my life. I am struggling I don't know where to go. I've turned to myself. I've turned to different sources. But God, I'm desperate for you. I need you to intervene in my life, God. I'm coming to you. And maybe you've prayed that prayer before and you've fallen away from God and your life doesn't look anything like what a Christian should look like. You can come home too. Just say, God, I'm coming home to you. I'm running, I'm running, I'm running to you. I surrender my life. I give over the keys and I ask you to be the driver. Um, and maybe you're, you are heartbroken tonight. You know, delay makes the heart sick. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would invade your heart tonight. 
that he would um, be your next breath, that he would come up close to you and he would remind you that he is with you, that he is for you, that he has never left and know he will never leave you. You are his. And he is a God who is familiar with that. And I pray that you would get a second wind tonight, that you would feel his presence undergird you um, in a unique and supernatural way that um, you've never experienced before. So Lord, we, we give all of these things to you. God, you know the places of our heart that are hard. Would you soften it? God, you know the places of our, uh, that we don't talk about, the prayers that we've prayed for years or maybe given up on praying. God, I pray that you would breathe fresh life on us, um, that we would be bold, faith-filled people of God who come boldly to the throne and lay the pieces of our life before you and that we would allow you to put it back together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Stephen. This sounds so beautiful.